Okay, good evening, everybody. It's 7 o'clock. We're going to go ahead and get started because we have a lot of verses tonight. And uh, I want to make sure we get through everything we need to get through. So let me pray for us. God, thank you uh, for your word. Thank you for uh, the great love that you uh, reveal in it, that you would send your son to die for us and to rise for us and to give us life. And thank you that you have not left us uh, as orphans, that you've adopted us and that you've given us your spirit, the spirit of adoption. And we uh, pray that the Holy Spirit would help us now to understand what you've written for our instruction. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Well, thank you all for your flexibility from uh, last week. I know the women appreciate it. And uh, so now we are on our second to last lesson for this study. It's good that nobody applauded. That means maybe you're enjoying it. No, 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 it was good. It was good that you didn't applaud. Um, all right, so here's where we're at. We are in this section of Colossians where, where Paul is now uh, telling us about what this new life that we have in Christ uh, looks like. If, if the, the whole of the Christian life is centered around uh, Christ and we grow into maturity by growing deeper into the gospel of Christ and not being drawn off by all of these other things that might pull us away, uh, from Christ. What does that new life look like? And so the last time we were together, we talked about uh, Paul starts by giving the foundations for the new life, this fact that we're united to Christ and that everything in our life, all of the instructions that are going to follow are all uh, rooted in this fact that we have been made new in Christ. We've been justified. Uh, we've been adopted. Uh, we've been uh, regenerated. We are being sanctified by his spirit. Uh, and all of those things, that all of that that comes in this package of being united to Christ provides the foundation and the power for this new life in Christ. And then in verses 5 to 17 in chapter 3, he's, he's starting into some basic instructions, some general principles for how to live this life. Right? So it's not just let go and let God uh, I'm going to kick back until Jesus comes back. No, there's things that we're to do, things that we're to practice. And so he gives some instructions, and we focused on kind of the negative instructions the last time in verses 5 to 11 that we're supposed to put off or put to death sin, put off the practices of this old humanity, this old, uh, the, the old people that we were in Adam because now we're in Christ. And so we're going to finish up that section tonight looking at verses 12 to 17 where Paul starts talking about what does it look like if we've taken off the old humanity, we're putting off the practices that characterized our old selves, what does it look like to put on the practices of the people that now we've now been created in Christ? What does it look like to become who we are? And then he's going to move into some examples of the new life, uh, some, some really concrete examples. So he's going to give some, some general ideas of what it looks like to, to put on this new humanity in verses 12 to 17. And then in verses 18 uh, to chapter 4, verse 6, he's going uh, to look at some, these, these two major examples of uh, the new life in action. He's going to look at the household, so relationships uh, in, in the household, and then uh, uh, how you relate to outsiders, and we're going to look at that next week uh, along with the, the closing uh, of the letter. So but tonight we're going to look at the putting on the practices of the new humanity and then the first example, what does it look like to live this new life in these relationships within the household? So we're going to talk about that when we get there. All right. We've, I think I've got four slides worth of verses, which is more than normal. So buckle your seatbelt. Verse 12. So, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. 
So uh, if verses 12 to 17 are uh, describing how to put on the practices of this, the, these new, this, this new life we have in Christ, say the first part of verse 12 uh, forms uh, the basis for all of these instructions. So it's like he's going back and repeating what he's already said in uh, chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. So in, he, in those four verses, he gave us the foundation of, of who we are in Christ, and that's going to be the basis for you because you are united to Christ and you have all this thing. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. You died with him. You've been raised with him. Therefore, put to death what's earthly within you. Therefore, put off these practices. He's going to do the same thing here uh, in, a, in a smaller way. He says, uh, here's remembering the foundation, your, your identity in Christ. Uh, you are those who have been, and he gives three identifiers. You've been chosen of God, you are holy, and you are beloved. You're chosen by God, you're holy before God, and you're loved by God. And if those things are true, then that reshapes the motives which with, with which you will obey, right? If I know that someone loves me, if I'm beloved, that's going to change the way that I respond when they ask me to do something. If I know that I'm secure because God has chosen me and he chose me, not because of anything righteous that he found in me, but just because it was his good pleasure. He chose me not because of something that I did to earn it, which means there's nothing I can do to lose it. And I come from this place of security. That's going to change the way that I respond to him in obedience rather than doing something to earn it so that I hope if I do something good enough, he'll choose me like we're standing on the playground hoping to be picked for the kickball team. I hope I did it enough so that somebody wants to pick me. We don't, we don't do that. We, we start from a place of knowing we've been chosen and we're holy. Now, that doesn't mean, of course, that everything we do is holy. And if that's what you think, we can have a conversation about that another time. Uh, but that in God's uh, cosmic courtroom and his sight... Because we've been declared righteous, we can be considered to actually be holy, to be righteous. That doesn't mean that that's who we are in practice, but that means before God, we can truly be called saints. Not because we've done anything especially righteous, but because we're in Christ. Because we're in Christ, who is holy we can be considered holy. So those things form the foundation for what we're, we're going to see now as he gives these Christ-centered commands for the new life. That's in verses 12, the middle of verse 12. So we would call this 12a and this 12b. I think I maybe mentioned it before. When you see that in a, in a book or, or, or something like that, anything that I write. If I say verse 12a, that means the first half of verse 12. Verse 12b is the second half of verse 12. So from 12b to the end of 17, it's a bunch of Christ-centered commands for the new life. So, verses, uh, uh, so verse 12b to the end of verse 14, which is the end of this slide, the command is going to be put on Christ-like virtues. Put on Christ-like virtues. These are primarily relationship-focused. So absolutely they have individual connotation, but you'll see as, as we read through them, most of them you're only going to be able to see worked out in the context of relationships. So he's talking now about uh, what it looks like for us to interact with one another as a part of the family of God. So he says... Put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. So heart of compassion. Compassion here uh, is uh, something like um, particularly displaying a concern over another's misfortune. Uh, 
Um, think of how compassionate Christ is as people come to him and are suffering, uh, how compassionate he is uh, just in the fact that he would become man and enter into our brokenness that he might redeem us. This is a characteristic of Christ that we're to emulate. Kindness or goodness. Uh, it's interesting that, that a couple of these are, are, are fruit of the Spirit. Kindness or goodness, humility. And now, interestingly, this is the same word as uh, false humility that, that occurs earlier in chapter 2, but here it's used in a positive context, and I think one of the main differences is where it stems from. This humility comes from a relationship with Christ. It's the result of a relationship with Christ, as opposed to the false humility of these, these teachers who were uh, getting really excited about all of their religious activity. This humility flows from uh, an understanding of who you are in Christ. Right? Salvation by grace alone leaves no room for boasting or pride because you didn't do anything to merit it. So it should lead to humility. Gentleness, again, one of the fruit of the Spirit. It's related to humility. Uh, and we, we might normally think of gentleness as meaning uh, not being overly harsh. Um, but here the, the idea is actually it's, it's much closer to the idea, uh, the idea of humility or meekness. Um, one of the definitions that I found here for, for, for gentleness in the, the uh, Greek dictionary that I have is the quality of not being overly impressed with a sense of one's self-importance. Uh, I think the opposite of that is something I'm, I'm well qualified at, being overly impressed with a self of my own self-importance. I think I'm, I'm really good at being impressed with myself. I've got a lot of experience in it, at least. And patience. Put on a heart of patience. So we're supposed to put on these, these uh, virtues. These are all Christ-like virtues. They are all things that characterize who, who Christ was, who he demonstrated himself to be, his ministry on earth, who he continues uh, to be. And then with patience... He then follows patience with these two, these two uh, kind of examples. So you have the ing endings, which means normally if it's a verb with an ing ending, it's usually modifying something that came before it or explaining something that came before it. So uh, put on patience, how? I think both of those modify patience, how? Bearing with one another and forgiving one another. So patience uh, isn't just like, I, you know, I, I used to think I was a really patient person, and then I had kids. And, and now I realize how impatient I've actually always been. It just never got tested. Right? So patience isn't just something like, oh, I'm, you know, I, I feel patient because I don't blow my top at the first sign of you know, something. No, I'm actually very impatient. Patience has to be uh, demonstrated. So we bear with one another and we forgive one another. Now, what's interesting is that he roots all of this, or he roots particularly this idea of forgiveness in the Lord, right? You forgive one another just as the Lord forgave you. So in this whole section, he's never going to stray far from the motivation for what we do, uh, not just being because I said so, not just being because it's right, but being something related to who Christ is or what he's done. So why are we to be patient and bear with one another and forgive one another? Well, we're supposed to do it just as the Lord forgave us. And then 
verse 14, beyond all of these things, so all of these things being everything that came before, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. So this kind of highlights what, he, what he's been getting at this whole section, right? We, 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 if we look at what it looks like to put on these Christ-like virtues uh, in, in our relationships with one another, compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, forgiving one another, what's going to result in is, is unity. And if he's using this terminology or this kind of metaphor, if we've, we've taken off the old humanity like, like, like a dirty garment and we're putting on these virtues of the new humanity like a clean garment, and he says beyond all these things, or in addition to all these things, put on love. And he, it's almost as if he's, he's envisioning this as the belt, that it's love that actually holds all of this together. It binds the whole garment of Christian virtues that we're supposed to put on, right? It's the perfect bond of unity. It's the summary of, uh, of all of these things. If you're, going, if you're, if you're loving one another, it's going to look like compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. That ultimately all of those things, if those things are being practiced, it results in unity in the body. So first, put on these Christ-like virtues. It's verses 12 to 14. Second, it's verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. So again, he's got the idea of unity here in mind. So this is primarily a relationship focus. So when he says, let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, sometimes when we read this, we think that what it means is um, let the feeling of peacefulness that comes from Christ uh, guide your heart or, or, or something like that. And I don't think that's what it means. I think the idea, particularly in the context, is is him saying that uh, relational peace is to uh, rule over the church, right? So he's just talked about all these virtues that are, are to uh, characterize our, our interactions with one another. He says, now I want you to be at peace with one another. And he follows that. He says, I want the peace of Christ to rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. Right? So you have unity, one body. That's what makes me think here he's not talking about a subjective sense of peace, like I prayed about it and I didn't have peace about it. I don't think that's what he's saying. He's saying, be careful to, like Paul says in Ephesians uh, 4, to, to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We're talking about relationships, peace with one another. We have peace with God through Christ. We've been reconciled to God. There's no longer enmity between us and God, so there also ought not be enmity between us and other believers. If only that were true. So we're to let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. And then he's going to mention several times here, be thankful. In the next three verses, he's going to repeat that three times. Be thankful. So he's already, he's already hit that a couple times in the letter. He's going to do it more now. So put on Christ-like virtues. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Says, Be at peace with, with one another. In verse 16, let the word of Christ Richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. There's thankfulness again. 
So just like we're, let, we're to, to, to let the peace of Christ rule in our midst, we're to let the word of Christ dwell within us. The word of Christ is the message about Christ. That's the gospel. Certainly we wouldn't say that that also entails the, the scriptures, but probably here Paul's thinking of, of the, the proclaimed message about Christ. Let the gospel dwell in you, which I love because it, it captures so much of what we've been talking about, that, that the church is to have the gospel at its center, that the gospel is to live within us and give, uh, give us life and power uh, for, for Christian living. The word of Christ richly dwell within you. Now, what does that look like? Because I think if, if I were to just say, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, stop, the first thing I would think is read your Bible. Now, I like reading the Bible. I am pro-reading the Bible. Okay? You should read the Bible. You should read the Bible every day. That's important. I don't think that's what this is saying. Okay? Because he goes on to describe what he means, how the word of Christ, how the message of Christ, the gospel, is to dwell within us. He tells us, with all wisdom, teaching, so we're teaching one another, that's kind of a positive, right? We're giving instruction and admonishing one another, that's more negative, that's like kind of correction. So we're teaching and admonishing one another. So this is not just one person doing it, this is us all doing it. We're all to be doing it with one another. And how are we to do it? With psalms and hymns and spiritual songs singing. So that the gathered worship of the church where we are singing praises to God is not just about an experience that we have ourselves of worshiping. It is a, it is a, a corporate event in which we are instructing one another, in which we are singing truth to one another, which we're teaching and admonishing one another through our singing. So we're to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And we could talk about, there's all sorts of uh, ways that people try to break down um, what, what one means and what another means. And, and I think the idea is just singing songs. So we're not going to get into the minutiae with that. And so, just on that topic, it's important to remember that the primary issues as we think about worshiping, as we think about singing corporately, uh, are not uh, whether I enjoy the music or whether it's good for me or uh, it's what I, what I like or what I prefer, but one, does it express uh, does it allow you to express thankfulness in your heart to God? And two, does it teach and admonish everybody else with the word of Christ? And if we're all supposed to be doing it with one another, it also means that the things that we are singing ought to be singable. The reality is that there are some songs that are not written to be sung by everybody. There are some songs that sound wonderful sung by one person in a stadium that don't sound wonderful being sung by the body of Christ. And that doesn't mean that one's good and one's bad. It just means one is for one purpose and one is for another. And so it's verses like this that lead Benjamin to say that when he considers choosing what songs we're going to sing on a Sunday morning, he's looking at, one, is it theologically sound? Is this going to enable us to accurately teach and admonish one another with the word of Christ? And two, is it singable? If by our singing we're going to instruct one another, then the songs we choose have to be singable in such a way that the congregation can participate. And what's been really encouraging for me is 
I'd say particularly over the last year, uh, uh, maybe a little bit more, um, our congregation sings loud. It's fun. It's great. The point where, I don't know if you guys knew, we blew an amp, uh, and so only one side of the sound was working on Sunday. So I don't know if you could tell. Maybe, maybe you could tell. Maybe you weren't. And as I'm sitting there, I'm thinking, you know, this is actually kind of fun. I can hear everybody sing. This is very encouraging to me. Um, so maybe you don't all feel the same way. That's a, it's okay, but I, I, I really liked it. So, but I think what he's talking about here is in the corporate gathering of the church that part of the, the, uh, the ministry of, of instruction in the church is as we sing to one another, we're not just singing uh, personally to God. We are doing that. We're also singing to one another, reminding each other and encouraging each other about what's true. So put on Christ-like virtues, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. And then verse 17, and this sort of summarizes the whole thing. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then again, giving thanks through him, God the Father. Right? This maintains the, the Christ-centered tone of this passage. Everything that we do is to be done in the name of Jesus, for Him, through Him, to Him. Right? This, this seems pretty all-inclusive. Whatever you do, in word or deed, that's supposed to mean everything. In everything you do, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then we're to give thanks to God through him. And so the motto of the Christian life is all of life for Christ. Right? Everything we do is to be connected to Jesus in some way. I think one of the questions I, I asked you that I don't remember off the top of my head because it's like two weeks since I wrote them uh, was something like, are, are there things that you're doing right now that you're not doing with any kind of reference to Jesus? Can you start doing those things with reference to Jesus? So redeem them. Or is it not possible for you to do those things with reference to Jesus because they're actually sinful? And so do you need to stop? And something to think about. If there's something you're doing for which you can't give God thanks, that's probably something to consider putting to death. So putting on these uh, practices of the new humanity. Now, verse 18, he's going to start talking about uh, these examples of the new life in action. These changed relationships uh, that uh, demonstrate how we do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Right? So we just said we're supposed to do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now let me give you some examples. And he's going to start. Uh, in verse 18 through chapter 4, verse 1, which is where we're going to go for tonight, he's going to start by talking to them about uh, household relationships. All right, so if verses 12 to 17 give the general principles, how we relate to one another. These are worked out practically in some very specific Ways and, and he starts with this radical reformation of the household. And the household in, in the ancient world was not just your nuclear family. It was made up of, of kind of a, a wider group of people that included not just your, your spouse and your kids, but maybe extended family and, and servants or slaves as well. So uh, the head of the household in the ancient kind of Roman world was the guy called the paterfamilias, which is a much cooler title than dad. 
I don't think my kids are going to catch on to calling me paterfamilias, though. Right? He's the family father. And in that culture, uh, outside of this, this, this new reformation of the household because of Christ, the paterfamilias, the family father, had absolute authority. Right? Uh, and so there were various uh, household codes that were written by you know, philosophers and, and teachers in, in the ancient world that were supposed to govern or suggest how the household was to be run. And basically, they all kind of said that the paterfamilias was in charge and everybody else had to obey him. You don't need to go read them now, that's what they say, essentially. I think it gave some more specifics about things that the, the head of the household were, was supposed to, to do and, and ways to, to manage uh, the household. But in general, he had complete authority and everybody else had to obey him, no questions asked, because he was the head. Okay? With that in mind, what Paul does here is pretty radical. Because he says, now, because of who you are in Christ and that the people in your household, and I think he's assuming the people in the household uh, are, are also believers oftentimes. Uh, because of who you are in Christ, uh, this new life you have uh, rewires the way in which you view others, in which you view the, the people in your household. So Paul gives here his his own version of a household code, and he introduces these concepts that would have been really very countercultural in his day. Uh, that's uh, important to note because they're also, in a lot of ways, very countercultural in our day, sort of a different way. Right? So he's going to start in verses uh, 18 and 19 with uh, husbands and wives. So in most of these, he's going to give a command, or he's going, to, he's going to give an instruction. This is what I want this group to do. And then he's going to give a reason uh, for it, oftentimes. Sometimes he just gives two commands and he doesn't give any reason for it. So first, wives, be subject to your husbands. Right, so we're starting with wives, be subject to your husbands. Now, we don't have time to get into all of the, the complicated, uh, complex things that have to do with well, what does that exactly that mean and, and so forth. We can talk about that another time. But that statement in and of itself was not radical. Right? That was normal. That was a normal statement. Be subject to your husbands. But then he introduces something that is more radical. He says, as is fitting in the Lord. So he grounds the uh, this relationship of the wife to the husband, not in the husband's intrinsic absolute authority, right? He's superior to you, so you obey him. He grounds it in, this is pleasing to God. This is part of God's design. God designed men and women to be different. He designed men and women to have different complementary roles within the marriage relationship. That was part of his good design. So he's saying, Yes, this is part of God's design, but you don't do it because he's intrinsically superior. You do it because it's fitting in the Lord. You do it with reference to Christ. Right? Now, see, this does not include things like if your husband is asking you to do something sinful or is abusing you. Those things uh, are not places where you are to be subject. You to uh, obey God rather than man. Okay? And it's actually, this word, um, interestingly, it, it's, in, it's in a tense in Greek that is, it's called reflexive, so it, it's, it has reference to yourself. So it's not just be subject, it, it could be subject yourselves to your husbands. That is, this relationship is to be one that is voluntary, not coerced or forced, which is often what it would have been in, in that day. And it's, it's one, this, this voluntary 
submission or subjection is one that's to occur specifically in a relationship of mutual love. And we're going to see that presently. So then husbands, wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives. Now, again, that in itself is actually kind of radical for the time. A lot of arranged marriages, there was really no guarantee that the concept that we have of love in a marriage relationship existed. Men were just the head of the household. They didn't have to love their wives. Paul says, no, that's, that's not the way it's to be with you. God didn't design you to use your wife. He designed you and her for you to love her, to care for her. You go and read parallel passage in Ephesians Five and see how uh, Paul instructs husbands to cherish their wife, to care for them, to nurture them as they would their own body. This is very radical for the time. Husbands didn't have to do that at the time. Do not be embittered against them. So there's, there's no place in a Christian marriage for uh, a uh, a domineering husband to use his wife as a doormat uh, or to instruct her in the name of submission to do things that dishonor or demean her. Husbands are to love their wives like Christ loved the church. It's a sacrificial, self-denying, self-giving love, one that leads us all to gladly and gratefully submit to Christ. And so if husbands love their wives like Christ loved the church, then it ought to lead to the same kind of joyful, loving submission. It's easy for me to submit to somebody when I know that they love me, and I know they have my best interest in mind. So he, he, he reshapes the way that husbands and wives are to interact with one another. And then parents and children. Children, be obedient to your parents in all things. Again, this is not especially uh, radical. This is what children were supposed to be. They're supposed to be obedient. But then he, he again, reshapes why children are to be obedient. Not just because I said so, right? My kids are at the stage where they ask why, about everything, why. And I'm, I, before I had kids, I was like, I'm never going to say because I said so. That's dumb. Who would say that? Boy, I say that a lot. <laughs> come, come here. Why? Because that's what I said. What do you mean, why? Just come, Right? That's not the, 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 the place that Paul roots this, uh, this command. He says, be obedient to your parents in all things. Of course, then all things understand doesn't mean absolutely everything because absolutely everything would include being, uh, commanding them to do things that are, that are sinful. Be obedient to your parents in all things. If you think about the old uh, uh, wedding vows, in all things lawful, right? Why? For this is well-pleasing to the Lord. So again, a reference to Christ. All of life has this reference to Christ. Why am I to obey my parents? Because it's well-pleasing to the Lord. But again, this this occurs within, not not in a a bare children obey because it's well-pleasing to the Lord. It also occurs in this context where the fathers, the parents, are being instructed to behave a certain way towards their children too. Fathers. Interesting that he doesn't say fathers and mothers. He specifically focuses on on fathers here. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. So Paul's calling here for fathers not to discipline or deal with their children in such a way that They provoke their children to become irritated or embittered against them. Now, of course, it doesn't mean that parents shouldn't discipline their children. 
but it's calling parents to do so in such a way that it doesn't unnecessarily provoke them. Right? So there's, there's ways of, uh, of disciplining and discipling uh, kids that uh, are appropriate, and you know, with kids, they will be irritated by all, all manner of things, but you don't have to do anything really intentionally to irritate them or intentionally to be harsh with them. It's a call to avoid undue harshness in our parenting. And this, again, was countercultural. This is not something that fathers had to do. They had complete authority. They could tell the kids to do whatever they wanted, and the kids had to obey. As Paul says, that's not the way it's going to be with you. Now, he, he's going he's gonna to move on in... in uh, in a second, to talking about slaves, and we'll talk about that briefly. Um, but it's interesting that in, in these two verses where he's talking about husbands, he's talking about fathers, he's really talking, in terms of the household, he's talking about the same group, right? This person was both the husband and the father in the household, and then is also the master in the household in reference to slaves. So he's really talking to one, he's talking to three different other groups, wives, children, slaves, He's talking to one, basically one person in the household when he's talking to husbands, fathers, and masters. It's one, one person with three roles. And he hasn't given them reason yet or, or, or reshaped the reason for their, their obedience to these commands, right? He's told the wives, do this because it's fitting in the Lord. He told the children, do this. It's well-pleasing to the Lord. But he's just given the husbands and fathers commands so far. Just do this. Do this. We're going to see why in a second, I think. Verse 22. Slaves. In all things, obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. So slaves is probably not the best translation here. And the reason is not because the word doesn't mean slaves. It means because what we think of when we hear the word slaves is probably not what they thought of when they heard this word. Okay? Um, so, so I've translated it in, in, in your uh, booklet as bond servant. You say, well, that doesn't help me. What's a bond servant? Right? Well, Part of the reason that I would pick that is because while maybe that requires me to explain what a bondservant is, I don't have to deconstruct as much on what a slave is and is not in the ancient world. So, but here, uh, in, uh, this is a quote from, I didn't write down which commentary it's from. It's a quote from some commentary somewhere. <laughs> Trust me. In the first century, Slaves were not distinguishable from free persons by race, by speech, or by clothing. They were sometimes more highly educated than their owners and held responsible professional positions. Some persons sold themselves into slavery for economic or social advantage. That would be something like indentured servitude. They, these people who sold themselves into slavery could reasonably hope to be emancipated after 10 to 20 years of service, or by their 30s at least. They were not denied the right to public assembly. They were not socially segregated. They could accumulate savings to buy their freedom, and their natural inferiority was not assumed. Slavery in the ancient world was either the result, usually, of economic hardship or being captured in war. It was not the result of being uh, kidnapped and enslaved generationally because of your race. That is what we think of when we think of slavery, right? We think of the African slave trade, which actually, if you go uh, into the Old Testament, you'd see is something that regardless of what people in the South tried to do before the Civil War and say that the Bible actually supports slavery, what they were practicing was clearly uh, uh, condemned by the Bible. Now, this doesn't mean that all slavery uh, or, or slavery at all was a, was a good or desirable thing or that the masters in this type of slavery or bond servitude always treated their slaves well, but it means we can't approach the whole question of what slavery is uh, by just assuming that when I read the word slaves, it means what I think it means. 
right? This is one of the things with studying the Bible. It's just because you read a, a word in the Bible and you think it means this, that doesn't mean that's what that word means. That's why we have to do some, some contextual, some, some, some historical work. We have to do some, some work with the word itself to figure out what it meant to the original readers. Just as, as sort of an aside, uh, if you were to go to Exodus 21, 16, you would see that the type of slavery that was practiced in the uh, American South or kind of the global slave trade during the colonial period is actually something the Bible condemns. Exodus 21, 16 says, He who kidnaps a man, whether he sells him or he is found in his possession, shall surely be put to death. So the idea of taking somebody, kidnapping them, and either selling them to somebody else or owning them yourself was a capital offense in Israel. It's a pretty big deal. So this is different than that. Otherwise, Paul, I think, would have been saying something like, if you own slaves, you are in violation of God's law. He doesn't. That doesn't mean he loved slavery, but he was taking the, the cultural context that he had at the time and saying, listen, I know I can't get rid of slavery. This is going to happen, so this is how you should, you should treat them. All right? So slaves, obey your masters on earth. He says, not simply externally, right? Not with external service. External service would be those who merely please men, but do so with sincerity of heart, right? Do so from, from inside. Why? Because you fear the Lord. Again, the lordship of Christ affects everything. These bond servants, regardless of how they got into slavery, are to obey their masters and they're to do so sincerely out of reverence for Christ. Right? Christ reshapes the way that they relate to their master. He goes on and he gives a little bit more instruction about how slaves are to act. He says, whatever you do, again, he's still talking to slaves, whatever you do, do your work heartily. So this is kind of reinforcing what he's already said in verse 22. Work heartily, that is, work as if you were working for the Lord rather than for men. Because you know that from the Lord you will receive a reward of the inheritance. So he's, he's grounding all of these instructions to the slaves in, in this orientation towards Christ. That even if, maybe even if your master is not a believer, do your work for him and work well. Don't cut corners. Be diligent. Don't just... Work when he's looking. Do your work well. Why? Because you're not just serving him. You're serving Christ in your work. In everything that you do, you're serving Christ. Right? It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. And he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong for which he has done, and that without partiality. He says that actually it honors Christ for you to do this work well. If you decide, I'm not interested in that, I'm going to continue to be lazy because I don't like this guy that I work for, uh, he says, then you, you're going to get the consequences that come along with that. You're not going to get the reward, you'll get the consequences. Of course, there's a lot we could say about that and tease out some of those things. But then, verse 4-1, now he's going he's gonna to address the masters, right? So you have the masters, husbands, fathers, all the same person. All that, that person, that's the paterfamilias. He's the husband, father, and master of the household. He says, masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness. That's not something they had to do. Right? He said, treat them like human beings. Be fair with them. Don't treat them like property or tools to be managed or used. Treat them as people. Treat them as their believers. Treat them as brothers or sisters. And this is actually going to be important because uh, in Colossae, there was this guy named Philemon. 
And Philemon owned slaves, and one of his slaves was a guy named Onesimus. Onesimus ran away. And then he met Paul, and he got converted. And then Paul sent him back and said, no, you need to, you need to go back. But he wrote a letter to Philemon saying, he's your brother, you need to treat him like your brother, not your slave. He actually doesn't say you need to free him, he just says you need to treat him like your brother. Which, that itself was radical because runaway slave can be put to death. Right? So, uh, Philemon, the letter to Philemon was probably carried with the letter to the Colossians by Tychicus to Colossae, right? So they're at the same time. So Philemon, hearing this letter read, is going to hear, uh, Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness. And then he's going to read this letter to him from Paul saying, by the way, I'm sending back Onesimus, and this is how you need to treat him. This is very different from the household codes of the ancient world where the, the paterfamilias had this absolute authority and societal norms said he could treat his slaves or his kids or his wife however he wanted. But up until now, they've not given any kind of reasoning for that. He's not grounded it in anything. He's just given commands. And now, I think because he's, he's finished with this section, he's going to give He's going to give that, that reason, that grounding for why this, this one person, the husband, father, master of the house, is to do these things, is to act so differently than his uh, secular counterparts. His counterparts are people who are not Christians. Do all of this. Why? Because you know that you too have a master in heaven. You do this. Because even though society says you're in charge, you're not in charge. Jesus is. You are not the Lord of the household. Jesus is the Lord of the household. He is your master and you serve him. Which means you are to not lord it over people, but you are to be a good steward of those who God has given to you. Right? The the shape of the household uh, and, its and its relationships is totally changed because the head of the household is no longer a man, it's Jesus. And if Jesus is the head of the house, then it radically reshapes the way that these relationships function. So that's Paul's first big example of what it looks like to, uh, to live out this, this new life uh, in, in, a, in, in real life, this new life in action. So we're going to look at the next one, verses, uh, chapter 4, verses 2 to 6 next week, and then we'll, we'll go into the conclusion as well. So make sure you grab the questions on your way out. We'll be here, Lord willing, next week to wrap up.